Hey everyone, welcome to MCU Fan Show episode 217. My name is Sean Gerber. In a moment, I will be joined by guest co-host Tom DeMichael for our spoiler review of What If Episode 3, What If the World Lost Its Mightiest Heroes, directed by Brian Andrews, written by A.C. Bradley and Matthew Chauncey, and A.C. Bradley is the head writer for the series. But before we get into that, I want to let you know where you can hear our Spider-Man No Way Home trailer breakdown, as well as our Eternals trailer breakdown. You can do so by subscribing to the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts, which features the premium subscription series Fan Show Plus, on which those trailer breakdown episodes appear. And the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer breakdown episode is available for free without a subscription if you just want to check it out. And then, of course, you can subscribe to get all of Fanshow Plus, including that Eternals trailer breakdown. And Fanshow Plus is going to be a weekly podcast that will offer even more MCU coverage than what you hear on MCU Fanshow. Industry news affecting the things we love, like Marvel, Disney, movies, and streaming. It will also feature the occasional spoiler review for non-MCU movies and series that many of us are interested in, like the upcoming Book of Boba Fett series on Disney+, Plus or the upcoming Peacemaker series on HBO Max. All of those types of topics will be discussed on Fanshow Plus, and those podcasts will be available weekly for $4.99 a month, and that is via an Apple Podcasts premium subscription. It's also available via Patreon, if you would prefer that option, patreon.com slash Sean Gerber. But if you want to subscribe directly through Apple Podcasts, now you can. You just search for MCU Fan Show and Apple Podcasts and click on the channel, not the podcast, the channel MCU Fan Show, and you will see both MCU Fan Show and Fan Show Plus right there. And then you just subscribe if you want to have access to all of the upcoming episodes of Fan Show Plus. You can also just search for Fan Show Plus in Apple Podcasts directly, and that's another way to find the show and access the premium subscription content or just access the first free episode with that trailer breakdown for Spider-Man No Way Home. Paul and I had a lot of thoughts on that trailer, so you can certainly check that out over there. And while you're on Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and review from you on MCU Fan Show. And for those of you who have already taken the time to do so, thank you so very much. Thank you so very much to those of you who are going to take the time to do so and leave that rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And then just make sure you are following us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Now, on with our show. Tom DeMichael, welcome to the MCU Fan Show. How you doing? Even through the microphone, his Marvel shirt smells. <laughs> uh, might be the frequency with which you wear them, though. That might, uh, yeah, that might explain it. That's probably true. I am always in a Marvel shirt, <laughs> although they are usually clean. So, okay, very uh, good. Today's shirt is Agatha all along for all of you podcast listeners who cannot see the shirt that I'm wearing. So I do have a, do I have a what if shirt? Yes, I do, but... That one is definitely not clean. So I, I don't have the right shirt to wear for this podcast recording. <laughs> but uh, Tom, it's great to have you on MCU Fan Show. It's been great talking Marvelous Moments with you over on the Patreon. And we got another one coming up pretty soon there with Portals, which is exciting. 
But in talking about what if, uh, well, before we start talking about the third episode, how mm-hmm. have you liked the series so far through the first two going into this one, the Captain Carter and T'Challa Star-Lord episodes? What if has been just a wonderful trip to the ice cream shop to look forward to every week. It is it is just a thrill to get to relive these moments in the MCU and these characters and literally just these colors and locations and feelings uh, through such a new filter while getting to further dive into the psychology of our favorite characters who maybe haven't had either as much of a chance in the spotlight or we haven't got to see them in uh, the the light and the personality that they're presented in. It's been a total hoot. I'm a big animation fan. Uh, so seeing Marvel Studios break into the realm of animation has been really, really exciting. The show looks amazing. It feels great. It's a feat. Uh, AC Bradley in, in writing. It's a feat in uh, remaining on tone, pushing the boundaries and artful efficiency, I think, uh, in compressing these stories to uh, 30 plus minutes. It's been an absolute treat and I look forward to it every week. I do as well. And I've been a huge, huge fan of the series as people have heard on the first two episode, the first two spoiler reviews that Paul and I did together. This third one, I continue loving the series. I love this episode. I wouldn't quit it. Uh, I wouldn't put it for me quite on the same level as the first two. But at the same time, I mean, the mm-hmm. emotional, the pre-existing emotional connection to Peggy Carter and T'Challa, a little bit different from this story. And those are more centered on single characters as opposed to this one, where there's plenty of Nick Fury and Natasha Romanoff, but you're really going through the paces of a murder mystery. So the emotional investment isn't quite the same. But there's still plenty of that there, and it is a lot of fun. And the reveal at the end, I thought, was outstanding. And it allowed the structure of this, giving it a murder mystery, which going into this episode is not what I would have imagined that it was going to be until it started. I didn't until we started going through the paces of Tony Stark dying. I I didn't realize that it was going to be a whodunit. And it was great to be able to explore that. And I feel like you only get to explore that because it's what if, because Mm -hmm. superhero movies and series don't, they tend not to lend themselves to a murder mystery whodunit type of format, because you usually know who the antagonist is. You know, because there was an article in the trades or an announcement or a trailer or a poster or all of those things combined, you know, who's playing the villain, you know, that they are the villain And sometimes we get reveals at the end, like Kang or He Who Remains, played by Jonathan Majors at the end of Loki. Mephisto. Yeah, Mephisto. uh, Or you get, uh, you know, like a little bit of Alexander Pierce in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. But who didn't think that dude was bad in Captain America, the Winter Soldier? So there have been some mysteries and some late villain reveals, but not quite in a true murder mystery type of format. And so having the opportunity to explore that and do it in a way where it's set against a time in the MCU that a lot of us are are quite familiar with, and and some maybe not in in what this actually refers to, this episode is a take on what has long been known as Fury's Big Week in phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where Iron Man 2, The Incredible Hulk, and Thor all 
parts of their stories all overlap. And I love that they use that as a space for this. I mean, it's the perfect way to have a murder mystery. It's the perfect time for all of these heroes to be taken out in one fell swoop. Uh, so that's a great use of that. And I also like that knowing that the MCU has a lot of newer fans, whether it's people who came on board during phase three or now in phase four with the Disney Plus series, like I am delighted by how many people I've known who've come up to me and spoken with them in in real life uh, in those times I venture outside um, or elsewhere, people who have found the podcast or, or whatever it is where people have made it known that they didn't really know the MCU very well or maybe even hadn't seen any of the movies until they and didn't see anything until they started watching WandaVision or the Falcon and the Winter Soldier or as recently as Loki. I had some first time brand new MCU fans that I met. And of course, they go back and they watch everything. But this is a great way of kind of referring people back to phase one. And maybe it gets people to revisit those movies, which is awesome. Um, even Iron Man 2 and, and The Incredible Hulk, no snark. Uh, so nice to it's great that it does that. But then also um, just what a, a fun murder mystery that has a, a pretty emotional reveal at the end that also allows us to see a side of Hank Pym uh, that the MCU has not shown us uh, that the comic books did. 100 percent. And, um, you know, the reason I feel at all anywhere near qualified to even be on this episode is that I'm a Fury's Big Week advocate. Uh, phase one came at you know, a, a, a crucial developmental period in my life. Like I was in high school when Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk came out, uh, following all of phase one into college, early adulthood was, you know, foundational for me in so many ways. It was something that was just going on in the background and, uh, determining a lot of what would be, uh, fun and cathartic about that given year. And it, it just, the first half of this episode, especially, uh, was just heaven for me to get to bask in in phase one, explore the idea of Fury's big week um, outside of a tie-in comic. I'm really excited that this notion of uh, Iron Man 2, Incredible Hulk, Thor, and the discovery of Cap in the ice all occurring in the same week. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that's really you know been the little engine that could when it comes to MCU canon. It's often included in official timelines mm -hmm. that the uh, the marvel studios releases um because i mean it, look it's a it's a big swing i i think right i mean it could and at the time it could have even been seen as you know trying to uh lump these events together in a way that um might have been hard to buy but like it just the comic itself it is great which you should check out i have it on the marvel app i'm not sure if it's on unlimited um it's it's a lot of fun and it's it's like great additional characterization for Fury, Widow, and Coulson. And if you're an MCU freak, it's really fun to see uh, how these events intersected, who might have been at them, whether or not the movies showed them. Right. Um, it's it's a lot of fun. So again, getting to explore that era a little bit more through this warped lens of what if, mixing in one of my favorite genres, uh, the murder mystery, with Nick Fury as our as our uh, Poirot or Sherlock or even Benoit Blanc is just, this was just a lot of fun. It was. And uh, Fury's Big Week, I think the first time I remember, I mean, I think watching the movies, it was very apparent. And you see a mm -hmm. clip of the news report from Culver University during Iron Man 2 uh, when Tony's kind of getting his final evaluation in Iron Man 2. 
or not final because he totally ended up being an Avenger despite that report. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, you know, you get the reference Nick Fury referring to the bigger problems than Tony Stark in the Southwest region. And, and Coulson goes and has to leave and, and shows up at the crater in New Mexico. And, and there's Mjolnir as our post credit scene in Iron Man 2. So knowing about it from the movies, but then the whole the legend of Fury's big week. And it was kind of talked about even before the Marvel prelude comic. I remember the Marvel the for anyone who might have it uh, pull it down off the shelf, like the art of Avengers book has a timeline um, that also spells out uh, Fury's big week. But it's just been part of the the MCU lore for a long time, except it's kind of been, I, I think, forgotten because so many things the story has progressed so massively <laughs> since then. Uh, but I love the idea of of going back and emphasizing that not so little detail. And we also get a very key what if, like what if Mark Ruffalo had been in the Incredible Hulk, and what well, would maybe, that what would that well, have well, looked? When and we get to like? that, I have I have so much so yeah. much to uh, rant about that. It's uh, awesome. Uh, of that, I've no <laughs> doubt. So uh, this is a very easy episode, as we were talking about just before we started recording, to go beat by beat because we just go through the days of the week. So let's start with Monday. And Nick Fury is talking about how there was an idea and Natasha finishes the quote. And I just like seeing this little bit of Fury and Natasha in the car, like in the drive up to Randy's Donuts, where they're going to confront Tony Stark and, of course, reveal Natasha will be revealing who she really is, not Natalie Rushman from Legal. And so I, I got a kick out of that just to even see that conversation even happening. Um Although I, I did bump up against repeatedly calling it the Avengers Initiative because originally it was stated as the Avenger Initiative and it's been called yes. that since then. But also occasionally it's been referred to as the Avengers Initiative, plural. So I guess either version is acceptable. I'll allow it and move on. But mm-hmm. go watch uh, yourself, counselor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I will continue on with this in my short sleeves, though. So, yes, the we get the scene where it, everything plays out exactly the same, except that's not uh, that is not Robert Downey Jr.'s voice as Tony Stark. It's uh, Mick Wingert doing his best and doing OK. Um, One of the better like Iron Man uh, voiceover actors, yes. he usually and I guess this I guess Mick has done him in some animation as well. But like typically in animated series where they're doing a Robert Downey Jr. voice double. He sounds like a mixture between Jack Black and Dr. Evil. Um, <laughs> he was in a nice register on Downey here that he he sounded like him, especially on the first line. Like, yep. it's when he gets a little louder, as we saw in the trailer, where it gets into that, like, throw me a freaking bone here, people. Like, let's take a selfie. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. He, he did fine in this one. I'm curious, you know, because we know that there's gonna, probably going to be more Tony Stark material in the Killmonger episode um, that we've seen clips of in various trailers. So we'll see. But I thought he did fine here. It it wasn't as seamless for me uh, as far as like I I noticed it more that it wasn't Downey as than I did when uh, Josh Keaton did Steve Rogers a couple weeks Mm -hmm. ago, which I I almost didn't notice at all. If you told me that it was Chris Evans, I might have believed you. Um, But also, you know, Tony Stark is not the only voice that's changed. We mentioned Natasha Romanoff. Mm-hmm. Lake Bell is on the voice duties here. And I thought did a very good job because I, I think I, I liked the choice that was made here because she's doing more of the episode. They didn't necessarily try to have her or she didn't necessarily try to sound exactly like Scarlett Johansson. I, I think she did a 
she was close enough, but also at the mm-hmm. meantime, at the same time, I think the focus was on the vocal performance more so than sounding like Scarlett Johansson. Uh, and I thought it worked out. I thought Lake Bell sounded great as Natasha, and I didn't find myself not believing that this was Natasha Romanoff from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it, it didn't sound as close to Scarlett Johansson as, as maybe we've heard with Steve Rogers or even arguably Tony Stark in this episode. All that mattered to me is it sounded good and it was a good performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought, she, I thought she was right on the money. It definitely, um, I actually think like just based on what we saw of um, Mick Winger doing Tony in the trailer, I actually think that she, for me, falls into more of that Josh Keaton territory where it's like, okay, like I, you know, she's doing a, a pretty good mimic without falling into caricature than I would expect. A little more with her is she, and maybe it's because she featured in the episode more, she's uh, bringing herself to it more, which right. I think is also part of selling the magic trick. Um, and I guess like on a, that kind of fits in in the larger note of how animation is utilized in shows like What If or Clone Wars, where it's that thing of like, you know, Lucas said with Clone Wars, like let's not do a photo reel uh, endeavor where we're trying to trick people into thinking that this is live action. If we just go with a stylized that we don't aren't even trying to replicate photorealism um it it allows the audience to just accept that right away and then you kind of forget because it just washes over you as like that is the feeling that i get from obi-wan that is the feeling that i get from watching uh nick fury and so i i feel like you know these these interpretations of these characters by different actors that we're going to be getting more used to in animation here in what if i think is just part of that same notion of translating this from the live action MCU we know. Totally agree. Great points. And I think that, you know, the the key point there is, yeah, if you're sucking us into the story and allowing us to be lost in that, then that's going to override anything that doesn't sound exactly like we would expect it to. And, and also, I, I think I have to give a little bit of credit and thanks to Benicio Del Toro for being the voice of the collector last week and also doing something different. So that kind of allows me to trick myself into thinking that if it's not the same actor, it is kind of. They're just doing something a little different with the voice in this timeline, maybe reflecting something different about this character and and where they're at at this point in their life. Um, mm-hmm. But then in getting to where things really diverge in this timeline, so it's time for the lithium dioxide treatment for Tony's palladium poisoning except this time he dies, and since Natasha is the one who injected him right before he died, she is now the suspect in the murder, although Nick Fury knows that's not true. But Mm -hmm. just that way of starting the episode and throwing us into the story completely knocked me off balance. Like, I was Mm -hmm. not ready for that. I don't know why, but, you know, I guess I wasn't... I didn't have any inclination going into my first viewing of this episode that there was a murder mystery that any murders were going to happen at all. And so when Tony Stark dies right then and there, um, it it definitely got me. And it got to a point mm-hmm. where it's it's such a weird thing to show a timeline where Tony's journey begins or ends like after it barely began. Because remember, Iron Man 2 starts like six months after the original Iron Man. Um, mm-hmm. Now, it it's I think Iron Man 2 spends a it spans a fair amount of time. They never really specify exactly how long it takes, but we we begin and we end the Stark Expo, which seems like a thing that goes on for a while. 
uh, during the events of that film. So it's a little ways, but still, to just think of what Tony's entire future was in the Infinity Saga, and in this timeline, it's completely gone right here and now at Randy's Donuts. It's not just the the effect of what I witnessed, it's that thought of, here's everything that will not happen in this timeline because of mm. this event right here and now that was part of the emotional effect for me. Very much so. And in the structure of Iron Man 2, like this comes at what is really like Tony, one of Tony's rock bottoms in his life. Um, and certainly within the, the context of that movie. So that is extra depressing that, you know, yeah, exactly. what, was supposed to, what was supposed to be his, you know, his key to the future, uh, second, literally a second shot, um, you know, is what leads to his death here. And, and that definitely, uh, definitely affected me as well. I think going into this one, because you saw this as part of the uh, early on, right? With Yes. With, uh, for press, yeah. I, and I will say, like, as you've been saying, people are unhinged on social media. I wasn't even searching for spoilers. I don't do that. Um, <laughs> but just looking at early reactions, like, people were spoiling that Thanos was in the Star-Lord uh, T'Challa episode, right. you know? And, and they, they did say that this was a murder mystery. Um, and because I have no impulse control, I was also, like, watching the officially released ads for this episode this episode and yeah. uh you know learning that it, the title was what if the world lost its mightiest heroes i was prepared to see uh, our team bite the dust but even so that that tony stark death uh was definitely rough also just like an intriguing bold way to start this episode um so i thought that was really exciting some of these deaths as we go on uh get a little rougher to, to for me to process yeah, and uh, it was. I'm very happy that I saw this one early, and mm -hmm. I was annoyed with people who I saw putting reactions like when I saw that Thanos had uh, that some people had mentioned Thanos in their reaction to episode two. I was like, that's not really cool. And then yeah, the murder mystery thing. I whenever anybody asked me about it, like when I did my non spoiler review, or there were uh, even after the episode came out someone mm -hmm. at work approached me and was like, oh, you know, was the new episode good? And and they're like and I was like, yes. And they're like, well, what's it about? And I, I I've only described it as, you know, a play on Nick Fury's big week. And I, and I said, I, I can't say anything more about it without I don't even want to tell you the type of story that it is, because then mm -hmm. th that I believe already spoils too much. So um, I didn't see the whatever Marvel had uh, released for it. I knew they were releasing promos for it. I did see when they uh, tweeted out like the title, I was like, ah, oh, why don't do that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. save this for the audience. Because I, I really enjoyed my experience with it of not knowing what the format of the episode even was. And so that way, this moment in particular was was really shocking. But even mm -hmm. so, like watching it, I've seen it a few times now. It's still great to watch it knowing exactly what it's going to be. And, and even after seeing Tony die, knowing what that would most likely mean for the rest of the heroes, each scene was still impactful with losing one of these uh, mightiest heroes. And uh, that leads us into Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So Mjolnir has been found uh, in Puente Antigua, Mexico, uh, New Mexico. And meanwhile, Black Widow is, of course, under arrest. We get a reference to Alexander Pierce. Black Widow is able to escape easily as she and Nick Fury knew that they both would. And, you know, nice uh, reprisal of Brock Rumlow by Frank Grillo providing that voice. And uh, as Thor shows up to retrieve the hammer, 
Uh, Hawkeye draws an arrow just like we saw in Thor mm -hmm. in 2011. Unlike that movie, however, this time Clint Barton releases the arrow, didn't mean to, but releases the arrow, killing Thor, and then Barton ends up in a holding cell where he is also killed. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of great stuff for this, like uh, Natasha's comment about mine holding these for me with her cuffs was awesome. Uh, I like when Coulson is explaining how nobody can lift the hammer, not even Jackson, and he does CrossFit. Uh, well, that one got a good laugh out of me. And then yeah. also uh, Coulson kind of fawning over the looks of the hair of Thor. And it's an accurate description, sir. He's gorgeous, which is accurate. <laughs> You're referring to him as a Chippendales dancer. And yes. even the way they kind of end that whole sequence with the whole there was an idea thing. And it's mm -hmm. it's Nick Fury saying that as the as that idea is completely unraveling before his eyes mm -hmm. there was an idea and that idea is is crumbling because now some of the key participants here and somebody he who he would have hoped would have been a key participant in thor it's all going away and, and he has no idea what's happening nick fury prides himself on being the one who knows everything and is the one who is always several steps ahead well now he finds himself in a position where he's not uh, the Natasha escape, I think, was exactly what we expect. Uh, they do mention when they studied Thor's blood samples that he's almost a thousand years old. Not in this timeline, or maybe in this timeline. He's 1,500 years old in Avengers Infinity War. So mm. I guess S.H.I.E.L.D.'s blood sample uh, and analysis is not what it used to be, or, or Thor is 500 <laughs> years younger in this timeline. I don't know. Um, I've seen people asking the question of would an arrow really kill Thor? Um, well, it's important uh -huh. to remember a, a key detail in this movie, which was Odin stripped Thor of his powers before mm -hmm. sending him to New Mexico. So remember, this is a Thor who got taken out by a trailer and by, you know, a mild car collision twice uh, in this. Mm -hmm. um, it was also able to be, you know, put to sleep uh, via sedation in his bum. So like this is what Thor... Yes. Yeah, this is a more, much more mortal version of Thor. I don't think he's not, I wouldn't say he's purely on human levels. I think he's tougher than the average human, as we saw him demonstrate in this still. And his his uh, sense of lavender is able to permeate any oh, Odin course. spell, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, but he is not invulnerable. So I, I do Same. buy at this point in time that, yes, Thor could be taken out from an arrow from Hawkeye. Yeah, no, there's a lot of great stuff here. Um, it was just great seeing... Uh, you know, the, the great thing about this show, just like further strengthening um, not only what we already know about these characters, but deepening uh, their relationships with each other and finding new ways to exemplify that. And I, I feel like Clint really got to has gotten to showcase like what a confidant he is for Fury. He was by yep. obviously he was by his side in Avengers and at the end of the Captain Carter episode. Um, it was great seeing him kind of bring him up to speed here at uh you know the the pop-up compound uh in new mexico and same thing with natasha like uh you know not only in that conversation prior to randy's donut hole inside of a donut's hole um <laughs> he uh i i enjoyed seeing like kind of that end game thing where we get to kind of peel back what went on in the margins of the events that we saw in the movie and i i feel like even though this is an alternate timeline probably offset by Hope becoming an agent. Mm -hmm. um, we can probably assume that Fury and Widow had that conversation in the car in Iron Man 2 in the Sacred Timeline. And like, that's really exciting to see these relationships deepened and like queuing up what trust 
Fury has in Widow and mm-hmm. finding her at this point in her arc where the notion of the Avengers Initiative, which while she doesn't know she's on the list, clearly is something that Fury has talked to her about before, is something that she might think is fine, but also roll her eyes at because it's idealistic yep. and, uh, you know, not not as, uh, I don't know, she, she's just a little more cynical at this point. Um, and similarly, like just seeing how her escape was teed up um, was really exciting too. And, you know, like you were saying, Brock was great. The fight was great. Um, really just fun stuff with her using that guy's head as a punching bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, bringing that into what goes on in New Mexico. Uh, yeah, it's shocking to see Thor die as well. Um, it's fun to see Coulson, like you were saying, kind of in this phase one mode, hopping around between our main titles here and bringing in a quality of him that we don't really see until Avengers. We get a little bit of it in Iron Man 2 with the prototype Cap Shield, mm-hmm. um, but the fanboy aspect of Coulson and like seeing that implemented into what would have been these phase one uh, narratives was also really fun. Yeah, it really is. And I think that there's an interesting point about the trust that you brought up between hmm. Nick Fury and Natasha. And even though Barton is with him side by side, Fury's reaction to the two of them is different. Sure. Both of them, in theory, just killed uh, a prospective Avenger before his eyes. With mm-hmm. Natasha, he automatically knows that and trusts that she didn't do it. Right. Because, I mean, he can say your arrow says otherwise to Barton, but, I mean, Barton, there was more distance between Barton and Thor than there was between Natasha and Tony. And Tony dies and, mm-hmm. and Fury is immediately trusting that she didn't do it. He doesn't seem quite as convinced that Barton didn't kill Hawkeye. Mm. And I, I don't know what that said. I mean, it, it could point to he, he trusts Natasha a little bit more than he trusts Barton. But it might also be the thing of not so much expecting Barton to be a bad guy, but Barton made a bad call. Uh, you know, it might be right. sort of what he's looking at. Um, but also Barton wasn't around long enough. Like we didn't get a conversation between Fury and Barton like we had between Fury and Natasha, where it, it was made clear to us that he still trusted Natasha and didn't believe that she did it, um, that maybe he also would have been similarly skeptical about whether or not Clint Barton really tried to commit murder. Uh, but I thought that part was interesting. And as we move to Wednesday, Mm-hmm. Natasha having escaped oh one last note for Tuesday credit to Frank Grillo but then also the animation for Brock Rumlow I love that they gave him an exaggerated reaction to Widow's escape which felt very much something you would do performance wise in animation that you would not do in live action and I'm totally nice. fine with Marvel kind of like uh, not entirely dissimilar to the general who gets punched in the gut and the big ooh face, you know, like noise and facial oh. expression uh, from the Captain Carter episode. But yeah, those are things that kind of only happen in animation. But this is an animated show. So do it. Yes. Yes. You, you know that I'm, uh, you know, a stand for the giant close up that de- dedicates five seconds of a 33 minute runtime of that. Yeah. That man screaming. Into yeah. the camera. It's just um yeah. This is the yeah, this was is a the great medium. he had a great Job Bluth reaction, uh Brock Rumlow, which was fun. Exactly. This is the medium you're <laughs> in, so play to it. So yes. I I respect those choices. And, and we do that with uh a couple of things in this episode that mm. I, I think would be um difficult to stomach in live action. So it's not only taking advantage of the medium in that here's the way to get all these locations and and actors and right. periods uh at the same time in an efficient way 
doable way, but also we're able to push the envelope a little bit in what the audience might uh, accept in a, a more you know sacred timeline setting. Absolutely. So moving to Wednesday, Natasha is now at Culver University, a familiar mm-hmm. setting for those who remember The Incredible Hulk and its place in the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is on the sacred timeline. So Natasha has brought the uh, lithium dioxide uh, injector to be inspected by Dr. Betty Ross. She uncovers that there was a projectile that must have been fired from it. And Natasha is scanning the room, as she, of course, would, being the spy that she is. And she's detects that there is someone else there. And, of course, we get some... uh, we get a little bit of Stanley's pizza parlor gear as another mm-hmm. reference to the Incredible Hulk and a Stanley Easter egg from that film, uh, besides Stanley actually appearing in that film. So uh, we find that, of course, Dr. Banner is there, but it is not Edward Norton. It does not look like Edward Norton. It does not sound like Edward Norton <laughs> because the character is modeled after Mark Ruffalo, and that is the one uh, who is providing the voice. And the introduction of to this was really really great because they this is one this is the episode that had the best examples of one of the things i was loving so much in watching the screeners where it was taking lines of dialogue that happened later in the MCU mm-hmm. and not lifting them word for word but close enough and bringing them into these initial interactions between Natasha Romanoff and Bruce Banner where, you know, the first thing he says to her in this What If episode, no need for violence, Agent Romanoff. That's probably not going to work out for anyone. Remember mm-hmm. their first meeting in Calcutta in the Avengers when Banner said to her, are you here to kill me, Miss Romanoff? Because that's not going to work out for everyone. And there's when he has his first Hulk out, that's very, which I'm skipping ahead a bit here, but just to finish this point on these lines sure. of dialogue, when... uh Natasha, when he's about to Hulk out, her saying, we're okay, right? That's also what she's saying when they fall through in in the helicarrier and he's about to Hulk out. And even the last thing before he Hulks out, when she says, I'll get you out of this, I swear on my life. And of course, we know that Banner slash Hulk screams back your life in the Avengers on the Mm -hmm. helicarrier. Well, uh, that was after Natasha said, I swear on my life, I will get you out of this. I just love taking these lines of dialogue from their earliest interactions in the sacred timeline and putting them in here in their earliest interactions in whatever this timeline is, uh, I got a big kick out of that. And, uh, of course, was delighted to see and hear a Mark Ruffalo Bruce Banner at this point in the Incredible Hulk timeline, in, in this timeline in the Incredible Hulk uh, events. Absolutely. Modeled after a, a 2008 Mark Ruffalo. Like, it's it's the it's the dream come true of, you know, people who are saying, like, what if there was a a new cut of yeah. <laughs> where you inserted Ruffalo into a uh, deep faked Ruffalo into Incredible Hulk. Look, like that year again being so foundational for me personally, having Iron Man and Incredible Hulk, and then nothing until Iron Man two, um, and then spending so much of that time being excited about the announcement of the release dates for Thor, Captain America: The First Avenger, Avengers, learning more about like you know where do these things take place. Incredible Hulk and Iron Man were all that we had for right. 2008, 2009. So, like, it, I spent a lot of time with the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. And for almost two know, years, it, it, that was the MCU. Your MCU rewatch going into Iron Man 2 was Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. 
Exactly. And uh, it's it was, you know, it, it was it was really exciting for me to see, you know, we've gotten Ross's come back. We know that Blonsky is going to be back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that, um, you know, like little elements of that have been carried forward uh, from Incredible Hulk into the more modern era of the MCU. It was so exciting to just like fully embrace it and revisit locations and revisit the likenesses of actors, uh, see a likeness of Scarlett Johansson communicate with a Liv Tyler uh, proxy, you know, mm-hmm. and and then of course like just the wish fulfillment of inserting Ruffalo into those events was uh, super exciting. And like you said, the exciting thing about this show is when there are callbacks, it's not just you know, of course, it on one level is the the dopamine of oh oh it's a thing from when we were younger, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> but like just from a character standpoint, knowing what things sustain, knowing that like Banner will greet Natasha this way, no mm-hmm. matter when they meet, uh, Korath will be the one to confront a Star Lord, dependent on how his reaction to it, uh, you know, corresponds, and. Uh, that's just really exciting and that's that's what's fun about this uh you know this alternate reality concept here yeah it's this is part of it is part of the joy is finding out all of the things that are different but also discovering certain things that are kind of the same and that mm-hmm. endure and the best example of that are, are more of the character elements like what aspects of the characters sure. endures from what what which aspects endure from one timeline to another Certainly the most important point, but yeah, just different lines of dialogue or how first meetings are different, mm-hmm. but then also kind of the same is a huge part of the excitement. And uh, credit where it's due to Stephanie Panicello, who is our voice of Betty Ross in mm-hmm. uh, in this episode and did, I, I think, a terrific job. And I- I've seen, of course, because it's social media and this is the way things go and, and the way people react to things. Of, oh, it should have been Edward Norton for this episode. And... Ignoring all the practical reasons why it it's not and was never going to be, I think there are this works for me on on two levels. One, mm-hmm. it's just Mark Ruffalo who is the best Bruce Banner and, and best uh, live action Hulk in my view, um, mm-hmm. and live action Bruce Banner too. Like and even in animated form, like he's my favorite Bruce Banner. So uh, having him come back into this space, I, I think, is a real treat. I never would expect them to go back and like reshoot the movie and have Mark no. Ruffalo <laughs> be Bruce Banner in that. I, I have been open to the idea of, uh, since the Hulk is digital, to like have the Hulk that we've seen in the M- the rest of the MCU be inserted into the Incredible Hulk. But even that sure. is a little too special edition-y. Um, I, I feel like you could get away with that and I would actually embrace that for Thanos in Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, yep. not Avengers. I don't want to remove Damien uh, Portier and his place in uh, in Marvel history, but um, for this example for uh, for the Incredible Hulk, like I I think it works because Ruffalo is so good in this. I got a kick out of seeing an animated version of his Hulk uh, mm-hmm. in this uh, sequence, which uh, we'll get to in just a bit. But also, if anything, this preserves the continuity that this is the same Bruce Banner. That that's why it's mm-hmm. part. That's part of why it's interchangeable. Ignoring all the practical realities we know outside of it, of why it was definitely going to be Ruffalo and not Edward Norton, it does cement that idea that the Bruce Banner that Mark Ruffalo has been playing, it is still the Bruce Banner from The Incredible Hulk. There are of course right. differences because of the actors and and what ha- the creative choices with the character, but it is still part of that sacred timeline. 
Um, and so in this one, you know, he started looking like this a little bit earlier in life, <laughs> I guess is how Absolutely. we can uh, make sense of it. But while all of this is happening at uh, Culver University, we are cutting back to New Mexico because uh, Loki is on the way. But before Loki even arrives, as Coulson is driving through the desert, there is a great shot of the Watcher just mm -hmm. up in the sky there, uh, watching as these events are, are going to unfold. And the Watcher being there, I mean, that's a visual cue that we have seen throughout these episodes already. But for this moment in particular, really rings true to the Watcher in the comic books, where Sometimes if you saw Uatu, like usually if the heroes suddenly saw the Watcher, it was like, oh, crap, something bad is about to happen because that's he's here to bear witness to whatever this huge cataclysmic event uh, is about to be or about, about to unfold. And sure enough, this is where Loki shows up with an entire Asgardian army. And in this sequence of events, Loki is not well, eventually he's questioned by Sif, but it's Lady Sif and the Warriors Three at his back. You know they are they are not trying to undermine him as they do in the first Thor film, and that's how things change. That's how things escalate because now everybody is on board with this idea of avenging Thor. There is eventually some hesitation for uh, Sif to compel Loki to hear Nick Fury out, but just that initial arrival of all of of Loki with Asgard fully at his back and supporting him in this leadership role. And then, of course, he will eventually do the worst possible thing with it. Um, but uh, that part I, I thought was really great. And yes, the, that shot of the Watcher as Coulson drives through mm -hmm. the desert is one of my favorite shots of the show so far. Absolutely. I mean, it really it's so uh, it's so enticing because, you know, there's another one later where he's overseeing the, uh, you know, the cemetery where even in a storytelling sense, you would kind of get the feel like, OK, we're, we're heading into our finale here. Like, of course, he's going to be overseeing this. Um, and maybe you're getting that sense here too, but something about like the watcher overseeing seemingly mundane events mm -hmm. uh, is really is really gripping. And I think like Coulson being our, you know, our surrogate for the feet on the ground for the audience perspective was really exciting to like see him be the recipient of uh, you know the watcher overseeing a, a simple coffee run. Yeah, um, I also found it interesting that Coulson. Um, you know, in the Thor movie, we get to see him take the charge on uh, the destroyer and be the one, you know, to yes. go on the megaphone and tell him to stand down and then go, here we go. Um, <laughs> and here, because Fury is around, he doesn't even attempt it. Uh, and just and actually they cut to him saying, go get him, boss, which I do wonder, like, was Coulson pushed into uh, more of a leadership position, uh, more assurance in himself? in the sacred timeline in the Thor movie because Fury wasn't actually around at the compound. And we could see how that diverts when Fury's there and, and like the difference that makes in, in Coulson's confidence. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to just see this sort of confrontation just between Asgard and, and S.H.I.E.L.D. But I love mm. seeing Nick Fury because it's classic Nick Fury. Like they are completely outmatched here. And, mm -hmm. and yet Fury maintains his composure and, and keeps his cool and, and talks his way through it. And that's something that, you know, a lesser leader wouldn't be able to do. So and he irks him. I mean, yeah, he, do, he does like he pushes him on, you know, I like, oh, you know, he goes like, I'm comprehending. All right. And yep. by the way, what's you know, what's in the box? And, and Loki even calls him 
Yeah. Uh, and gives a good Tom Hiddleston 2012 response to Nick Fury. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and calls him on it and says, <laughs> yeah. and says like, oh, okay. Oh, such uh, such defiance. And he's yeah. and yet it's he still buys it and unleashes fire. Yeah. Fury gets him worked up and then is able to uh, cut in. And when Loki's a little rawer, you know, say to him, like, this doesn't do anything. You know, right. Declaring war won't bring your brother back. And it would be one thing for that to cut through to Loki, and maybe it would have, but I love the added um, interaction of Sif intervening and de-escalating, being the right. one to, to say, like, this is, this is out of line with what the All-Father would want. Um, whether or not her reasoning actually is the thing that motivates Loki, or if he sees an opening to uh, domination here, it's still, I just really liked the utilization of Sif in that moment to, um, you know, to intervene. Yeah, I, I think Sif trying to de-escalate and also Nick Fury just correctly sizing up Loki. Because I, mm-hmm. <laughs> from what we understand about Nick Fury, everything he does is, is measured, it's calculated. So even when he has this attitude towards Loki, there's a reason for it. And there's a reason he feels like he can express it. Like if, if he thinks acting that way toward Loki and, and expressing any sort of snark or, or anything whatsoever toward Loki, if he thinks that's going to result in Loki just taking everybody out right then and there, then Nick Fury's not going to do it. I think that's mm-hmm. partly Nick Fury knowing, being able to quickly assess who he's dealing with and what that person will respond to and actually showing a complete lack of fear, maybe actually being something that gets enough respect out of this guy to keep him talking and keep mm-hmm. the dialogue going long enough to not have this be a war that Nick Fury loses immediately right here and now. Because look, that is what happens eventually. Mm-hmm. What happens at the end of this episode could happen right here in this moment, and it's only prolonged, uh, it, it's only delayed because of Nick Fury. And I think, well, with the assist from uh, from Sif. But I, I absolutely, I, I loved that, and I love that sort of showdown and, and that tension, and, and it completely reframed like what we saw in Thor, where just the destroyer is sent down, um, and the destroyer probably would have been enough. The destroyer was doing okay mm-hmm. uh, before Thor ultimately intervened, but uh, there is no Thor to intervene right here. But yeah, seeing the full weight of Asgard behind Loki, which is not something uh, that Loki, not the kind of support Loki typically had uh, in the MCU, all of that I, I thought was really uh, enjoyable in this sequence. I, I should call out as we're going through the back and forth between Culver University and, and what's happening in New Mexico. Uh, another line that I, I meant to call out here earlier is when Ross is still trying to hide Banner and Natasha says, move or I'll make you move, a la Io telling her, move or you will be moved in mm-hmm. Captain America Civil War, uh, I, I thought was really great. Also, um, Nick Fury's What's in the Box Definitely had a very seven ring to it uh, in the way that it was said, which has nothing to do with the MCU. But I, you know, somebody holding a box just kind of makes sense to go with the whole what's in the box mode dialogue. Yeah, similar to uh, how's that working out for you, which is from Iron Man 2. Yeah. Feeling uh, feeling very Brad Pitt. Yep. uh, Fight Club. Yeah, so I, I, I liked that. I definitely, that line stood out to me in that way. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was intentional, that they were leaning into the seven what's in the box bit <laughs> there. Um, so as we are, as all of this is unfolding, of course, things are continuing to, as things are escalating in New Mexico, they are also escalating at Culver University. 
because we are seeing Bruce Banner about to Hulk out as General Ross in the military as they arrive, except the Hulk out is uh, a little bit different here, as we will learn later exactly how different it is. There are similarities to the first, as I said, from in terms of dialogue to what Natasha is saying as she is witnessing her first Hulk out. And when we finally see Hulk kind of emerge, and it is an animated version of the Mark Ruffalo Hulk, I mean, it's my favorite version of the Hulk as far as all the CG Hulks that we've had over the years. And although even with the Ruffalo Hulk, there are various iterations of it. But I can't even express how much of a thrill that was for me. I've been mentioning in kind of the lead up to what if and anybody who's listened to the podcast for a while just knows how much Hulk in animated form uh, was such a, a fundamental part, a foundational part of my own Marvel fandom me watching reruns of the 1982 animated Incredible Hulk series. And there was, you know, I was just kind of transported back to that uh, in watching mm -hmm. this version of it. And it was the merge. It was kind of the merger of these two eras of my fandom, you know, the more modern version of the MCU with kind of where it all started for me. And it was just, I, I know it, it's a simple bit. And look, it doesn't end well for the Hulk. Like Hulk always did way better in 1982 than he does in this scene here. Uh, doesn't uh, doesn't go well. But just seeing that and seeing the Hulk in action in animated form, uh, and it's uh, an animated version of the, the Mark Ruffalo Hulk from the MCU, I just, I, I was over the moon. I, the, I, the plot of this part of it didn't even matter for me. I, I, I will I will freely admit this is where emotion is completely overriding everything else. Yeah, this is the part of the episode where I was just like, I am in MCU heaven here because we are affirming Fury's big week to the point that we're actually cross-cutting between mm -hmm. movies at this point. And that's like, that was just such a great way to take advantage of this medium and this opportunity here. Um, we're replicating the cinematography to an extent and the lighting and the tones of each respective film while also making them feel of the same world that when we cross back and forth between them uh it doesn't feel too jarring but it does feel exciting and we also have laura cartman who i, I want to talk you know I'm, I'm, we're talking portals later today so i'm obviously in a, a music freak mode uh her, her score on this has been fantastic and like her weaving these this cross cutting together is uh part of the uh the unity that is provided by the, um, you know, by the editing and the directing here, uh, but also like this, this suspense is being built up throughout this by going back and forth between New Mexico and Culver University, and you know by the time we get, you know, we get our Ruffalo hulking out, yeah, it's it's pretty thrilling. Even again, my 2008 heart, like seeing these uh, these action shots replicated in animation, but mm -hmm. with you know, a, a, a Hulk that has the stringier, incredible Hulk hair with the the Ruffalo chest hair on those pecs. Yeah, uh, it was like, and uh, and a little more of his likeness was a hoot. Um, now, how how did your uh, you know childhood hero core memory for you? How was it uh, seeing this bad boy blow up? <laughs> it was fine because he had to. It was because okay, yeah, yeah. in order to, it was one of those things where. I was happy to have because I know that there's more Hulk stuff coming up that we haven't seen sure. from the trailers, although that appears to be a Clint Barton Hulk. And so I think that was also part of the sure. delight for this is that the trailers have teased that, you know, we would see a timeline in which perhaps Clint Barton is the Hulk. 
but the the downside of that is well that's not an animated version of Mark Ruffalo Bruce Banner Hulk so to be con- to have it confirmed that like I'm going to get to see and I I am seeing this version of the Hulk as short-lived literally as he may be I was okay with it cuz it it really had to happen I, I think what I was more interested in was how are they going to kill him because mm-hmm. Banner even says, uh, uh, of course, you know, as he classic as anybody would say right before they die, I can't die. <laughs> I can't die. Um, so it's, but that also calls back to, you know, you can't because he can't. I tried, you know, when he talks, when he refers to his suicide attempt aboard the helicarrier, uh, when they're having the conversation aboard the helicarrier during the Avengers, mm-hmm. and he refers to that. And so this is why he already knows he can't die or thinks he can't die. And, and for all the reasons that we would expect. And, I was more curious of would they find a way to kill him that I would ultimately buy. And I do. Once we find out how exactly it happened with the whole sizing disc thing with Hank Pym, I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I buy that. If you're blowing him up from the inside, then that seems like the only way uh, that maybe it could happen or one of the relative few ways it could happen. So I bought it and, and I was okay seeing Hulk go because at this point I had already witnessed Tony dying and Thor dying and Clint Barton dying. So uh, I was also, uh, you know, and I know it's only this timeline. Mark Ruffalo's Hulk still right. lives uh, in, in the sacred timeline. <laughs> so I, I was okay with it. And, and really more than anything else, it was just a thrill to see that Hulk in animated form and looking so great, um, even if it was very briefly. Awesome. Yeah, no, it, it definitely like, part, part of my takeaway of this whole episode is like, I love the murder mystery genre. I love the mystery mm-hmm. itself and the reveal when we get there. Like I thought that was really well done. Um, and you know, the rewatchability of this, you know, phase one indulgence is really great. I, I am curious, like it, uh, you know, there is still part of me that just like watching the Avengers get killed is uh, like inherently kind of unpleasant, <laughs> but I'm also, I'm not saying that that detracts from the, the merits of the episode sometimes a little squirming is is uh, cathartic you know when when experienced through art but uh it is it is interesting just like oh wow like i above all i appreciate that they are bold enough to take swings like this where they would portray in any marvel studios released media right uh, even an alternate alternate timeline in which we witness the avengers get murdered <laughs> yeah well I think the other great effect of this episode is mm-hmm. I found myself gaining an appreciation for what did happen in the sacred timeline. Like if anything, mm-hmm. it it bumps up the stakes of these movies in the sacred timeline right. because normally our heroes are almost always safe, mm-hmm. meaning safe from death and, and safe mm-hmm. from you know serious or, or permanent harm. Usually they they don't emerge from these stories emotionally unscathed, but whatever physical injuries they may sustain are, are usually things that won't linger. On. I mean, there are examples where that's not true, but for the most part, our heroes, especially the ones who are leading their films, they they're generally physically OK by the end of it. And this is a time where that didn't happen. And so just knowing that because it happened in this timeline, them dying at any point along the way, it cements the idea that that was possible the entire time during the Infinity Saga. And if this is a timeline where the event, the original six all died before they could even become the original six, 
And then there are other timelines within these infinite timelines and possibilities where Tony gets taken out during Iron Man 3. And, you know, or one of them doesn't survive the Battle of New York in the Avengers. And then there's a version where three of them don't survive in the Battle of New York in the Avengers. And then three others are brought in or or whatever it may be. So it it just shows that, you know, the risk was always real. The danger was always real in the sacred timeline. Uh, It always could have happened. It always could have gone badly because here's an example of where it really did go badly. And one more thing uh, that I want to reach back to you. I I know we passed it up, but... um, Credit to Lake Bell for her performance and also the animation of Natasha's reaction to finding out that Barton was dead. Because Mm. that's a very different phone call than the Avengers where it was Barton's been compromised, Barton's dead, and Natasha's immediate reaction of who do I have to kill, uh, immediately wanting revenge. And that certainly drives her as we finish the day uh, on Wednesday as Mm -hmm. uh, Hope is trying to, or not Black, she's discovering the truth about Hope. Uh, Black Widow is trying to figure things out. And she realizes that somebody who died two years ago accessed the database, the S.H.I.E.L.D. database, a couple days ago. And uh, the killer attacks, and we find out uh, it's about, she's saying it's about Hope, which the first time I watched this, I thought she was saying it's about Hulk. And I was like, wait a minute. I was like, Hulk's already dead. Um, But no, it was, it's about Hope. And and okay, that that makes sense. And uh, meanwhile, Fury is running out of Avengers, but there's one more that he's got. So when Earth's Mightiest Heroes are being taken out before they can be brought together, that's a reason for Nick Fury to go to that pager much or the space pager much earlier than he did in the mm-hmm. sacred timeline to summon Carol Danvers, as we'll see later in the episode. But uh, then as he's replaying the message and, and thinking about it, it clicks that whole idea that it's all about hope. Um, I was, you know, that sort of reveal and setting up the Hank Pym reveal, I thought was all was all done very very well colson's password of hashtag steve 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 i heart steve 0704 steve's birthday uh was great uh, so but really i found myself in the black widow scene where she's being taken out by who we learned to be hank pym i really enjoyed the suspense in that scene mm-hmm. it's i don't enjoy watching natasha romanoff being killed just like i don't enjoy watching any of these avengers being murdered that part is uh, unpleasant, but sure. in the context of what this story is, and you know, even Natasha thinking that she's going to be able to take this person out, and then ultimately you see she stands no chance in uh, this battle, just as none of the Avengers stood a chance going up against a, a, a villain they could not see and who, whose involvement they didn't even suspect in this. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought... All of that was played perfectly. And and at some point, you kind of need that scene because I think the murders that we saw up until that point, you know, what Mm -hmm. happens with Tony is is so quick Uh, with Barton. We we don't even really get to see it with with all of these characters. It's so quick. And so you it can kind of lose the effect of the violence. But I felt like this one, you really felt it because, yeah, Natasha was not just taken out quickly. She really was in a fight for her life and, and ultimately lost. And that drives the the suspense of the episode of the story. Um, but it also is, that's what you need to really put you in that position. Not that anybody was like on Team Pim or Team Murderer ahead of this, but that's also part of where you you really illustrate the, the villainy that's at play. 100%. And she doesn't even realize that she, she says something that inadvertently agitates uh, what we'll later find out to be Ankh. Um, you know, she says, not against me, not against S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. Uh, 
which like is such a good statement for where she's at in her allegiance in her arc right now um but also is firing up hank pym in a way because that's that's the the symbol of his uh uh his his daughter's uh murderer really you know like that's that's he's he's he has it out for shield at this point so um i thought that was really effective both as like on a, a rewatch you recognize that kind of thing as a clue in the same way that you know maybe some of the sound design you can clock as a cute as a clue i also just like as a as a murder mystery like we're just getting such great locations and framing mm-hmm. in this episode such great you know cinematography which uh you know, through animation is through direction, it's storyboarding. Um, just like setting this encounter in a library when you when you have like a library in a murder mystery, this kind of uh, this ode to intellectualism and just the visuals of the cascading rows of uh, of shelves like it's it's such a great juxtaposition to just the raw emotional uh, and then physical violence that occurs in that location. So again, like uh, as unpleasant as it is to maybe see a version of Natasha uh, taken out in this location, just the execution of, well, the execution is uh, is is great, and it's and it's super suspenseful and has like horror movie vibes too, which is really cool. I gotta say, at this point, maybe it was because I wasn't allow I wanted the surprise so bad that I wasn't allowing myself to really waste too much energy. Uh, parsing through suspects and just kind of staying with the story. I really wasn't suspecting Hank. I mean, like even subliminally, just like trying to keep up with the story. I'm just like, oh, okay. Hope uh, two years ago, uh, image of Janet, you know? um, Right. But even then I was, I just, it wasn't, it wasn't clocking to me that this would be an evil Hank Pym yellow jacket. I don't know where, where were you at with like the guesswork at this point in the episode? I would love to be able to say that I was smart enough to figure it out ahead of time, (laughs) but I was not. I did not pick up on it. Part of it, I I think, is because of the mishearing on my first watch, thinking that she said it's about Hulk, that it it took it away. Maybe if I had correctly heard, it's about hope. But maybe part of the reason I didn't hear it correctly is because I wasn't tuned in to what it was going to be. But either way, I did not know until... Once I, I think once Nick Fury got to the cemetery, like I, I that was where I, I didn't need them to turn around and show me Hank Pym. That was when it, it kind of clicked for me as far as what I was about to see. But uh, up until that point, I I hadn't guessed who the killer was. And I mean, you go back through it and you're like, well, of course it was Hank Pym. I mean, that sure. that is why all these people are being killed and, and nobody can really tell how. But. I think the scene where maybe it should have been most obvious was the killing of Natasha Romanoff, but even that I initially took as something that is somewhat classic within murder mysteries, whether it's a, a film or a series, is that you do eventually get that moment where you mm-hmm. should be able to see the killer because you know they're definitely present in the room this time because you're actually watching the murder as it's happening, but you still don't quite get to see them. You don't quite get to be told or, or shown exactly who it is. And so with, with that scene, I kind of took it to mean that, that we're, we're shrouded in darkness and that's why I'm not seeing it. It's not because of mm. the size of the murderer. So yeah, they, they kept me, sorry, in the dark for successfully throughout yeah. this episode. And I'm glad they did. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think 
that was also maybe part of the benefit for me of not knowing what the format of the episode was before I saw it. That at right. this point, I, I knew I obviously I knew I was watching a murder mystery, but I didn't go into the viewing of this episode trying to fig knowing that there was a murder mystery and already trying to figure out who it was. So I was really just playing catch up throughout the story and, and watching it unfold. And I'm glad that I, I wasn't smart enough to guess correctly. And, and if you were awesome, uh, well done <laughs> for those of yeah. you listening. Uh, but yeah, the reveal itself I thought was great. I mean, we get to, I mean, first we see Nick Fury, you know, when he's kind of figured it out, he's ready to go make a deal with Loki and we get the interaction with the destroyer. But then, uh, as we cut to Thursday and we see, uh, Nick Fury at a cemetery and at the grave of agent Hope Van Dyne. And then we of course see Hank Pym, not in Ant-Man gear, but in yellow jacket gear, and that works on so many different levels, uh, which uh, I'll get into. Well, might as well do it now. Hank Pym wearing the yellow jacket armor, that is a reference to his time as yellow jacket in the comic books, where when he was yellow jacket, because of the stuff he was taking at the time, it really started manipulating his mind. And that was when Hank Pym became temporarily more of an antagonist in Marvel comic books. And then ever since then, there's been more of an un there's it hasn't always been the easiest relationship between other heroes and Hank Pym. And there's a lot of that territory that I don't think, you know, a lot of the stuff they were doing there, like him attacking Janet, that I, I don't think was ever done that well in the comic books. And that was territory right. I never really wanted to see them explore in the MCU. Right. But there is still a dark side of Hank Pym mm -hmm. to be explored. And, and I think it's been somewhat alluded to in the movies, but not very much. And this is an episode that goes there, but it provides the proper motivation for going there that, you know, Hank mm -hmm. Pym walked away from shield in the eighties. I'm sure in this timeline, as he did in the sacred timeline and was doing everything he could to keep his daughter away from that world to not lose her as he lost uh, his as he lost his wife and her mother Janet, and mm -hmm. and we know that from we know that to be true from the first Ant Man movie of how Hope mm -hmm. is, it's obvious in the movie that she's the most qualified candidate to go ahead and, and wear the suit and pull off the heist and do all of those things. The only reason she's not doing it is because Hank Pym is not allowing it because that's a father who doesn't want to risk his daughter would rather risk the, the life of the stranger that he doesn't right. really know, which it's obvious why a father would want to do that. Well, this is a version of events where Hope became an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. like Hank and Janet were at one point in time, um, and she ended up being killed in uh, outside Odessa in the Ukraine, which is another Easter egg that we will talk about. Oh, um, but that, that it's the yellow jacket suit that he's wearing, that's a callback to when things went bad for Hank in the comics, and then having him be a murderer here, but emotionally grounding that, not just, let's just explore what, let's just explore evil Hank Pym, because that's a thing in the comic books. How do you do that? Why would he turn? Why would he do this? And this is absolutely the right motivation for Hank Pym that totally doesn't excuse what he does, and this episode doesn't try to excuse what he does. He's still held accountable at the end of this episode, but at least as an audience member, I mean, you understand that he, you know, that justice will have to be served for what he's done and murdering a bunch of people. But you understand why you, you totally understand why he did it. Um, you don't excuse it, but you can find some empathy there for this character. 
And this is a version of, of Hank Pym that could have played in live action. I, I think the storytelling in this is so good. The emotion is so authentic. It would not have been worth sacrificing who Hank Pym is in the MCU and sacrificing, of course, Hope Van Dyne as a character in the MCU. Um, but this version of events, you know, creatively, I, I think the storytelling is, is really good here. Absolutely. I mean, I think exploring rage as a human trait outside of a character like Hulk, where it's literally part of the superpower, is uh, is is really effective. And I think really a unique opportunity with a character like Hank Pym. Um, like you were saying in the comics, sometimes, like a lot of times it's not done really well, but finding that balance where he's enough of a heroic character and mentor to our current players while also like getting to exhibit the fact that you know he does uh you know show justified rage in himself whether or not those actions are justified whether it's you know punching our guy in the face in the flashback in ant-man one or just those little those little flashes of you know no hope no you know like in in our in our main uh time period setting like it's it's definitely an effective side of the character that we get to explore here should he have gone down an even worse path uh should certain events have transpired that pushed him further in that direction where maybe he didn't have the help he needed or didn't have the, or the circumstances were so not in his favor that he fell further into that darkness i think what's really effective here and i'm, I'm sure you'll you'll have thoughts on this as well is how the reveal uh, utilizes the core notion of what if in that the reveal was not just oh Hank Pym is the murderer of the who done it right it's also utilizing this notion of like what is the nexus event that created this multiverse up till now we had thought that it was the mere fact that somebody was murdering the Avengers well when you think about it in a good murder mystery a murderer is always going to have a motivation and so if that motivation had to arise, it would have been something that occurred in this timeline. And to push Hank to that point, I think Hope having died as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, you know, is a great uh, divergence from the sacred timeline that would push him to that point. And I thought that was really exciting that that mm -hmm. the reveal of what the Nexus event was, was also part of the uh, the whodunit um, reveal, you know. The motivation was the the key point there, and, and I agree that the Nexus event, it couldn't have been the murdering. It would be what caused that in the first place, mm -hmm. what inspired that. And and so to ground it emotionally and, and finding the character who would be capable of doing it, because mm -hmm. Hank Pym would be a character who's capable of doing it, all of the things that we see him do as far as how he achieved each of these murders are all things we understand that he was capable of and that, you know, Scott Lang with the right motivation, although it doesn't seem to be within his character, uh, but would be capable of just based on the, the capabilities of, of Pym particles and the suit and everything that that uh, Hank Pym has access to. Well, that's what's that's I think was what also like in the long term, how this episode operates. Like, first of all, you can say, hey, in a murder mystery, should you really bring in a character who wasn't in the contained story to be the murderer is that less effective than it being somebody who we already might have suspected well the fact is most people who are watching this show are watching it in the context of the larger mcu correct so you can almost say that like you know literally everyone's a suspect um <laughs> yeah. and you know i think what it does for 
previous entries as well as future ones is really demonstrate uh, the burden that is put on Hank Pym's shoulders by having, I guess, discovered these Pym particles. This is an enormous power right. uh, in his hands that he could really misuse and in the sacred timeline has chosen not to despite uh you know despite his darker qualities and i right. think that can really strengthen you know when we watch ant-man ant-man and the wasp civil war endgame um as well as when we when we see ant-man and the wasp quantum mania uh just like how you know we're we're reminded of the the you know the the honestly the great responsibility that is shouldered mm-hmm. by these characters that wield this power well, and it also harkens back to the prologue from the first Ant-Man movie. And when Hank Pym walked away from S.H.I.E.L.D. after Janet, he thought, had died or had disappeared forever at that point in time, mm-hmm. that you know there was the, the talk of whether or not Hank Pym would be considered an enemy of S.H.I.E.L.D. and whether or not S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. had anything to fear from Hank Pym. And the argument from Howard Stark at the time was that you know they don't, not seeing Hank Pym in quite that way. That mm. at this point, Hank Pym, not that they say all of this in the dialogue, but this is the resolution is that Hank Pym is going to be allowed to walk away because and they're not going to turn him into an enemy, but they know he could become one. He's not right now, but as long as we let him walk away peacefully, we'll be OK. Well, that peace is broken when they when S.H.I.E.L.D. inevitably accepts Hope Van Dyne as an agent. And we don't know how it happened. Mm. We don't know. If she was recruited, we don't know if she sought S.H.I.E.L.D. out. We don't know any of that detail, and I don't know that we would ever get it, and we don't necessarily need to. But this, in this version of events, Hank Pym, because his daughter was allowed to be an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., he would see that as, I tried to walk away. You wouldn't let me. Mm-hmm. You got my daughter killed fighting for your cause. And, and when we're talking about the cause of S.H.I.E.L.D., which Hank Pym does a great job of calling out, you keep recruiting other people to fight in and, and die in your battles, which when we what we know about S.H.I.E.L.D. at the time, which given the references to Alexander Pierce and the presence of Brock Rumlow and the strike team, we know all of this to be true, that this is S.H.I.E.L.D. and HYDRA that Hope Van Dyne mm-hmm. died for, not knowing that she died for HYDRA in addition to dying for S.H.I.E.L.D. And Hank Pym doesn't necessarily know that either, but... S.H.I.E.L.D. was complicated morally and ethically even before we knew HYDRA was a part of it, right? And that was already, Mm -hmm. that was woven into the fabric of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the debates that characters would have, including aboard the Helicarrier and the Avengers, that not everybody really knew or trusted S.H.I.E.L.D. or that it was always for good and Hope died for that. But yeah, that is where Hank Pym comes, that's where Hank Pym comes back into it. I'm not going to, I tried to walk away, that didn't work, now I'm going to stop you. Um, in the best way that I know how, and I have the capability. So all of that works very, very well. And, you know, going back into the Nexus event, not so much, I don't really think the Nexus event is really the death of Hope. It's just the decision where she becomes an agent of right. S.H.I.E.L.D. Right. But speaking of the death of Hope outside Odessa in the Ukraine, well, mm. as we learned in Captain America, the Winter Soldier, that is where Natasha Romanoff was shot by the Winter Soldier. So... It appears to be the same mission. In this version of events, Hope took Natasha's place on that mission, or perhaps not even so much taking her place like Natasha was up for it and then Hope replaced her, but like because Hope was available, maybe that 
because uh, Natasha doesn't really seem to have any connection that we're told to that mission or to that moment. So perhaps just because Hope was there, the assignment went to her instead, and she's killed. Mm. So presumably, that is the Winter Soldier who shot her. But with things being different in these timelines, is that a Bucky Winter Soldier or is that a different Winter Soldier? And is that a question we'll even get the answer to? I have right. no idea, but it was the Winter Soldier or a Winter Soldier, most likely, that took out Hope Van Dyne outside Odessa in the Ukraine. Yeah, I guess, you know, we, we do get confirmation at the end of this that this is not the Captain Carter right multi, uh, timeline. Um, but that doesn't mean that somebody else could have been the Winter Soldier in this timeline, you know, and and perhaps, you know, you don't know how far back these... Uh, the domino effect of these Nexus events go. Right. Like maybe the Nexus event of this timeline was the other person who is the Winter Soldier. And right. that that is who got taken out in Odessa. Um, I think it's also just, it's really thrilling, uh, the writing of this episode. This was uh, AC Bradley and Matthew Chauncey, yes. I believe, right? Um, I think this confrontation between Fury, Wink Wink, and uh, Hank was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in the the amount of dialogue that really on voice in character alluded to Hank's uh, motivation and philosophy on Shield and his pain and his trauma, uh, mixed in with just the action of this scene. Like I, that's this is the moment where it's like, oh yeah, like we had the Hulk blow up and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, big beats like that. But like, this is this is an action scene. This is a fight uh, where we're getting characters provide insight into their motivations. And right. I thought that was just really, really strong writing as well as really strong direction with the fight choreo. Um, I would ask you, at, at what point in this confrontation did you know that Fury was Loki? When we got the shot of the, you know, like the classic like martial arts shot of like just the close up on Fury with the very casual blocking, I was like, oh, Loki, because the the first slap, I was like, I will buy that for a moment. Um, But then once it became well, actually, I can't remember was the. We got the deflection of the the blows and then the flip. Okay, yeah. So yeah, as, yeah. If it wasn't, I was gonna say if the flip was before those blocks, the way too casual blocks, then I would have mm-hmm. said uh, it was the flip. But I, I think those blocks were first. But yeah, that was when I was like, okay, uh, something else here. <laughs> so uh, and then I was like, yeah, it had to be Loki because then I remembered. Oh yeah, Nick Fury went and he met with Loki before any of this started. So I didn't immediately mm-hmm. go for it on the slap, but then yet once it was easy for Nick Fury, like I could buy him landing the the initial slap successfully, but then once it was so easy for Fury, I was like, well, no, this has to be Loki. Because look, all due respect to Nick Fury, I don't think he's a fighter on the level of Natasha Romanoff who got taken right. out by Hank Pym. And I think Nick Fury is very, very good um, but with only one eye open, I don't think he's going to be able to spot Hank Pym and battle him so easily when Hank Pym is, is shrinking down. So that was when it was pretty clear. But look, even though it's I don't think it's too hard to make that, uh, you know, to reach that conclusion for that misdirect, although maybe some people didn't catch it. And if you didn't, that's totally fine. But I still even though it was easier to spot, I appreciated that they even did one more misdirect in this episode that you mm. reveal the murder mystery. Here's one more swerve. Uh, and I thought that was a lot of fun. 
And really, like once you know that it's not Nick Fury, you know, and when so when he says the line, like, I don't give a damn about any of them. And there's kind of a laugh mm. at the end of that line. Like, yeah, that's got to be Loki because we know Nick Fury cares about these heroes. Now, he would lie about caring. I, I wouldn't put it past him right. to lie to someone like Hank Pym, uh, how much he cares uh, about these people who died. But nevertheless, at that point, it was already pretty clear to me um, that this was Loki. But I also I think there's there is good storytelling still at play here. It's not just the misdirect. It's how it happens. Like when you watch that sequence unfold, you would swear that Hank Pym would have stood no chance in a battle uh, against Loki. I don't actually believe that's true. I, I think the reason why Loki was able to fare so well and Hank Pym fared so poorly is because Nick Fury, as he's telling Loki about this and as they make this plan, he's telling Loki what to expect. And so mm. I, I do think that Loki as an Asgardian is probably better equipped, better eyesight to be able to uh, you know, maintain uh, visual contact with Hank Pym at all times and be able to fight him successfully. I don't think he's able to do that if he doesn't know to expect it, if he doesn't know that he's even supposed to be looking for it. So that Loki went in so prepared is, is all... Uh, Nick Fury, and, and that's why you know Hank Pym was complete. Found himself for the first time in this episode completely overmatched. Absolutely, yeah. I also appreciated. Uh, I mean, voice acting all around this episode, I thought was great. I mean, it's a great uh, lead role for Nick Fury. Sam Jackson has experience in voiceover. Uh, he's great. He sounds good as Fury in voiceover, and like it's you know sometimes I think. Sometimes I think when you get actors in the booth who like haven't done voice before, like they're contending with hearing themselves in the cans mm -hmm. and like, oh, how loud am I supposed to be? How overplayed am I supposed to be? And, you know, it's it's hard to find that kind of sweet spot, especially when you're recreating a live action performance. Jackson hits that great. Really excited to hear Michael Douglas yes. uh, deliver this take on Hank Pym. Finally get to hear him, uh, you know, just fully embrace that potentially dark outcome of mm -hmm. Pym. And, you know, and also just like AC Bradley, Matthew Chauncey, just again, writing really strongly in voice for these characters, uh, being excited to write Sam Jackson dialogue, being excited to write Michael Douglas dialogue where we're, you know, where, where he's going like the balls on you. Yes. <laughs> also <laughs> the, you're, you're pretty Douglas. Also the pretty, the break from the emotional intensity for the quip of you're pretty spry for a guy with a corner office was awesome. Right. I, I was shaking my head in a very, very pleasant and excited disbelief at I'm hearing Michael Douglas in a Marvel cartoon. Mm. And I, I think with Samuel L. Jackson, I guess because he's already shown up in so many other Marvel things and kind of contributed, right. you know, performances and his voice. In the Iron Man 2 video game. Yeah, it's not, a, it wasn't as surprising to, you know, hear him in this. But for right. Michael Douglas, it was like, this is a real treat. But also the, the writing by mm -hmm. A.C. Bradley and Matthew Chauncey, but then also the vocal performance from Hank Pym Michael Douglas nailed it. Like it was truly vocal performance pitch perfect in the way he delivered this because what he sold is what Hank Pym was in this story, which is not an evil man. No question he did mm -hmm. evil things, but this was a desperate, broken man that did all of this. And I, I think that was the line in 
allowing us to still have some empathy for him despite all of these terrible things that we have witnessed him doing in this story. I mean, we get it because we love hope in the MCU. So this is a loss for us of, oh, this character has passed in in this timeline and, and that's tragic. But we also know the love that he has for hope and that's what we're seeing. Um, it's that mm-hmm. loss that has completely devastated and broken him to the point where it's broken his sense of, of morality. Um, and, you know, it's, it's made him the kind of person that, you know, when, you know, Fury can say, you know, that he's the, he's become the kind of man that S.H.I.E.L.D. is designed to stop. And Fury gets a good line of saying S.H.I.E.L.D. is people, people willing to give their lives for something uh, greater than themselves to save the world from men like you. And Hank mm-hmm. Pym kind of knows that's, I think that's the shame of Hank Pym in that moment is that, you know, he became that kind of person that his daughter died trying to stop. Um, right. And so his last message as he's being hauled away is is screaming at Fury to honor her uh, because you know that ultimately that's what Hank Pym cares about. He had a very warped, misguided way uh, of trying to honor her or avenge her. Um, in a, you know, he became an Avenger in the worst possible way. And, uh, you know, and so he knows ultimately there's there's a huge moral and ethical failure there on his part, obviously. But maybe if he can, with whatever time he's got left with Nick Fury as his audience to get through, that uh, nothing gets to bring hope back, even all the revenge that he's just gone through here. Um, nothing's bringing her back. So maybe there's going to be some way that she can be honored. And, and Fury's the only one who might be in a position to do it. So that's pretty much what he's begging for at the end or right. insisting upon. Right. Yeah. No, that uh, him being dragged away saying, you know, then honor her like that, that, that was great. And we, I don't want to say we didn't, we didn't need that, but I feel like a less experienced writer, a less uh, holistic take would not have presented that uh, perspective from Hank. He just would have been the, the unmasked villain would have gotten away with it too. Mm -hmm. For you meddling. Right. Gods and uh, shield agents like just getting dragged off. And I, I feel like it kind of ties into, you know, I, I guess we can talk about a little bit as we wrap up, like what uh, Fury's arc might be in this, in this storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem that he uh, is motivated from a place of hope. This idea that the Avengers are an idea that they are a symbol for, um, you know, they're, they're more than a team. They're more than, a group of people and they're more of the the physical and the tangible they are a sense within our humanity that when things inevitably go south there will be people who can rise up right um, even if that means it's ourselves you know um and it, it i do wonder was do you think that's a perspective that fury carried throughout and even if he hadn't confronted hank and had his perspective on shield challenged do you think he would have ended the episode in the same place of hope or do you think it was strengthened by having uh this challenge from an opposing force of hank it's a really good question i i felt like nick fury wasn't ultimately convinced by anything hank pym said and it's not to say that i i think nick fury was sympathetic toward hank pym as knowing that this is a father who lost a daughter and this is what he's Mm -hmm. acting out of despite you know the bit at the end of you know trying to save the world from men like you, right? And I, but I, I feel like that's almost his comeback to Hank Pym is you know we didn't let your daughter down as much as you have by the mm-hmm. actions you've taken here and now. I, I think that Nick Fury 
he believes in the idea of remarkable people coming together, you know, to save the world. Like he he believes in that at the start of this episode. He believes in that at the end of this episode, even when everybody's gone. I don't know that Nick Fury's perspective is significantly altered. Like there's definitely no 180 right. from Nick Fury in this. What I do think maybe Nick Fury would be informed by, although the episode doesn't carry on long enough to really know, but if there was a, a lingering kind of lesson that Nick Fury could have taken away from this, it might have been to, you know, consider what he's asking of these people. I mean, it seems to be like mm. he already kind of observes that because he he believes that this is what S.H.I.E.L.D. is. S.H.I.E.L.D. is people willing to give their lives for something greater than themselves. Well, same thing for the concept of the Avengers, that that the world needs people who are willing to do this. And, and I believe that there are people who are willing to do this, but maybe Nick Fury is, if there's anything he could maybe take away from it, it's that these heroes, at this point, whatever sacrifices they're willing to make, it's not just their sacrifice. It's not just them who lose their lives, it's the people who count on them. It's the people who love right. them who lose those people. And so maybe Nick Fury would have a, a broader understanding of, of, or a more complete understanding of what it means to make that choice because we don't really know much about Nick Fury having much of a family life uh, outside of Shield, uh, mm -hmm. you know. That's so that's part of it. Where I mean, we know he's got a mom, um, and we know he has some relatives, but we don't see, you know, we don't know about like an immediate family for Nick Fury that he's going home to every day. So maybe that's something that informs Nick Fury a, a little bit more. But I, I don't think the story needs to change Nick Fury. I mean, I would love to see in this timeline though with everything that's gone wrong for S.H.I.E.L.D. in this instance, how does this Nick Fury respond to learning that S.H.I.E.L.D. is at least half Hydra? You know, how would that impact mm -hmm. him uh, just because of the the losses that uh, that have you know taken their toll up until this point? But I think mainly what you're seeing for Nick Fury and what I appreciated about him in this episode is that we often look at Nick Fury as perhaps the most cynical hero throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And here is an instance where some of the cynicism is, is still there, but this actually really makes it clear that Nick Fury, if he's not the most optimistic hero in the MCU, he's tied for first with mm. one or more characters because he had this idea for the Avengers. And we know that He's been thinking about the Avenger initiative since 1995 and meeting Carol Danvers. And mm. so at this point, we're, uh, you know, 13 years past that, roughly 13, 14 years. And at this moment, here is Nick Fury, this idea that he's been working toward and that he actually thought he was finally about to bring together. It's been completely wiped off the board. He has to start over. And yet he still believes in that idea and he still believes that he will find his heroes. He thought he had right. them lined up. Here they are gone forever. And now he still will. And by the way, on Friday, because uh, we were finishing up Thursday on Friday, Loki mm -hmm. has taken over all of Earth in a day and he gets to make his speech about made to be ruled and all of that stuff from the Avengers mm -hmm. that Nick Fury, despite having suffered just catastrophic losses at this point. Earth is lost. The Avengers are lost before they even got before they even assembled. And yet he's still able to say, 
they were an idea, the affirmation of, hum- of humanity's need to believe that in our darkest hours we will find heroes. Even though he's using the past tense there, I think in the mm-hmm. present tense, he still totally believes that, and he just begins his search anew. And that is an ultimate sign. I can't think of a, a greater sign of one person's optimism than the way Nick Fury responds to everything that's happened in this episode. Mm, well said. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I guess I I ask because I'm, I'm always curious just from a writing perspective on uh, this notion of character arcs versus static characters, mm-hmm. uh, the challenge of writing a static character. I know that the that Marcus McFeely have talked about in Captain America, the first Avenger, and even even Winter Soldier, they have argued that Steve is a, a static character. I'm not really sure that's entirely true. I think Steve undergoes changes in both those movies. Um, but just this notion of like a Cary Grant or a Rocky Balboa who or even like we talked about T'Challa as a character who changes mm-hmm. the world around them as opposed to uh, the focus being that the arc that they go through. And yeah, I guess uh, I'm just really interested in what again, what these shows can reveal about our team here and and what this says about Fury. And I think you're right on the money. I think he, if there's a change he undergoes, he has to reaffirm the hope that he set out with. Mm-hmm. I think that this episode in 30 minutes does a better job uh, solidifying the theme of hope than two in association with Marvel movies released in 2014 do. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think he, he has to find a new way to innovate in his his quest here uh you know he in the sacred timeline yes we would have we would have come upon uh steve rogers frozen in the ice anyway uh there is something to fury's hand being the one to uncover the shield Mm -hmm. here that this is more of his direct doing as is him knowing when to ask for help and calling in carol danvers uh and yeah in in these in these times of great despair in our real life, I think it's really encouraging um, to see a character, like you said, catastrophically uh, witness despair here uh, with, you know, Loki overthrowing Earth. uh, And maybe, you know, we could have had a scene where Fury has beaten himself up for that, uh, how his participation in that might have led to that. What could he have done differently? Instead, we just cut to him and Coulson mourning the Avengers and Fury already off to mm-hmm. his next step to persevere. Yeah, I think that was one of the more heroic moments we've witnessed from Nick Fury in mm-hmm. this episode of What If, which means it's probably not going to be, I mean, the Disney Plus series are very popular and do very well, but I don't know that this is definitely a moment that should be noted and, and called out and remembered as we think about the great moments for Nick Fury in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, those we've seen and those that are still to come, because this was, I think, one of the most heroic things. And you could say, well, it's there is the opportunity to be heroic in defeat. And I know mm. that may seem like you're, all you're claiming is a moral victory, but in the types of enduring struggles, like there is no final victory, whether you're mm. looking at it within real-life humanity or you're looking at it in a heightened reality such as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, There is no final form. There is no final victory. There is only the pursuit of something better. And I I think that in this instance for Nick Fury, where things seem like they are at their absolute worst because Earth has been taken over by an army that by an alien and godlike alien army that he it seems hopeless in, in their ability to one day defeat or overthrow that army. And meanwhile, 
the people who would have been the best defenders or Avengers for Nick Fury to actually have a chance to battle Loki and this army that all of that's gone. So everything, all is lost and he has to start over from scratch. But the point is he actually does start over. He doesn't Mm. go into despair. He doesn't take off for 30 years. He doesn't do any of those sorts of things. He just gets back to work and maintains that optimism you know, and the affirmation of humanity's need to believe that in our darkest hour we will find heroes. No one believes that more than Nick Fury, and that I absolutely love. And then you see that, thankfully, his hope is well-founded with the uncovering of Captain America's shield, and then, of course, Captain Marvel shows up uh, asking, so where's the fight? So mm-hmm. Carol Danvers is, is ready to help. And by the way, when you got Captain Marvel there, like, I think he'll clean up that Loki problem pretty quickly, but there will always be more after that. And this does point to something very interesting, like this timeline needs a new Avengers team. And it looks like Captain Marvel would be part of it. It looks like Steve Rogers would be part of it. And there are differences here that suggest this should not be or would not be the same timeline where we saw Captain Carter, because when Captain Carter emerges at the Project Pegasus facility, Clint Barton is still alive. Although I would say maybe what we find out later is that that moment was not 2012. Maybe that moment was earlier. I mean, this could, in theory, be the same timeline. I don't necessarily think it is, but there's a way for it to work. Steve Rogers could have become Captain America after Captain Carter disappeared. Mm. So he still could have been Cap. Uh, So, I mean, we know that there was a Steve that Coulson loved, but, you know, because of his password... But uh, yeah, this may still find a way to be the same timeline. I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sold that it isn't. Although we do have different shots in the trailers that kind of show one Avengers team that Steve is a part of, and another one that's more T'Challa, Star Lord, and Killmonger, Black Panther, and Gamora. So we may be looking at, you know, I don't think all of these episodes are a different timeline. I think some of them are intersecting in some ways, but we may still ultimately we may end up with just one alternate timeline by the end of this. Although there's still plenty of reason to suspect that it's it's more than one that we're dealing with. I'm not really concerned with what that's going to be. Not looking mm-hmm. for a receipt to cash in at a later date. It'll be whatever it's going to be. And I'm excited about it. What matters is week to week, we're getting great stories. And we've been having, it's three for three for what if with me. I, I think emotionally, I wasn't as, uh, you know, I wasn't quite as invested in this one. Although I, I've, in talking about Nick Fury so much, I've, I've become that the investment has gone up. But uh, yeah, this one, maybe not. I, mean, I think the T'Challa Star-Lord episode is there's a certain magic to that um, yes. that, you know, just can't be replicated. But all of these episodes so far, including this one, have been extraordinary. And, you know, of course, as we record this episode, it is the first anniversary of Chadwick Boseman's tragic passing. And so it's it's impossible not to think of that episode and, and all of his tremendous work and, and everything that we were you know, blessed with and being able to exist at the same time he did for a little while uh, mm-hmm. on this earth. But of course, we continue to remember Chadwick Boseman always, and um, I'm so happy that he'll be back in later episodes of this series, and I can't wait to talk about them. But uh, for this episode, this week, uh, Fury's Big Week uh, was a pretty great week for me as a What If viewer, and I'm sure you feel the same. I do. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, last last week was magic getting to just uh, 
just hear new words fall out of Chadwick's mouth uh, in general, let alone in the, you know, in a version of the character that he will be the most remembered for, he will be most associated with his impact uh, in this world. And, you know, it, it is, you know, on this day, it is a lot to uh, continue to process that infinite loss uh, by, by him uh, parting while we're, you know, so grateful for the impact that he left. And, you know, when it comes to, to this week, I, like I said, had a total hoot with this. Uh, this was really exciting to get to jump around multiple movies, uh, have a big ensemble cast uh, that is a, uh, you know, ends up being a list of victims or suspects uh, and continues to utilize this concept of what if in a really exciting way. I am just continually excited by what this series has to offer. And it's it's just, like I said, it's just a, a, a weekly Marvel treat that both gives us, uh, you know, fun doses of warped nostalgia as well as giving us new insights into characters that we know and love but maybe get to explore in a new way um i do want to give a couple shout outs to just like some a couple of things just some beautiful again framing and composition work in this episode there's some really cool shots of uh the uh ancient winter's fortress in the background Mm -hmm. kind of at the end of the wild west uh you know uh roadway of the uh new mexico town from thor um and some beautiful shots of of fury pulling away into that horizon uh there's a great shot of you know we talk about your you know your midgard sunrise uh there's a great shot of of fury standing over a defeated hank pym with loki by his side and the sun like rising between the two Mm -hmm. of them that i think is just really really cool and and like you know poetically relates to a lot of what happened in the episode and also kind of uh gives us a downbeat for something to subvert in a moment uh it almost it almost the sun almost unites loki and fury in this moment uh and makes that subjugation turn all the more jarring though somewhat expected so there's just great stuff like that uh, that takes advantage of this medium laura carpman on music continues to impress and just exhibit uh, a, a perhaps the most thorough understanding of MCU music that I've seen in a a, a piece of media released by them thus far. Uh, we're getting not only stylistic, um, you know, interpretations of each of these movies in their score, uh, and we're not only getting callbacks to previous themes, uh, such as the Avengers theme in the prologue, uh, Black Widow's theme by Alan Silvestri. That is then recalled uh, by Lauren Balf that shows up in the scene where she decimates Strike. Um, we're also getting some great callbacks to Patrick Doyle on the mm-hmm. uh, the close-up of the hammer and really exciting things like that. That is just, you know, great Easter eggs for people who are as obsessed with that kind of thing as I am and just, again, recreate the experience of dropping you into those moments in the MCU as well as carving out this show's own musical identity and implementing the what if theme the what if motif from the opening title sequence into moments where we're going to feel those divergences in the timeline have their most uh, effective results so i continue to be impressed by this show 
it's uh, a total hoot visually, sonically, uh, and just in the feeling that it gives you. Yes, absolutely. It is a an absolute treat week after week, and I'm very excited about. I, I think they've already kind of previewed some of what we'll see next week, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, uh, Ooh, as I do every single week. And what I would also I, I can't emphasize enough with what if. I'm enjoying this just as much as I have been the live action Disney plus series from Marvel mm-hmm. studios. There's no, the change in medium has not led to a dip in quality in the storytelling whatsoever in my view. Uh, and I'm having, I'm enjoying this just as much and having just as much fun uh, as anything else we've been watching this year on Disney plus. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to the end of the year and MCU fan awards to suss out, you know, what's the best thing we've seen on Disney plus this year. Uh, but they have done such a terrific job. Uh, AC Bradley is the head writer. Brian Andrews is the director here and and everybody who's been a part of this story. Such outstanding work so far that we have been treated to just through these three episodes. And and I can't wait to see what's to come and finally be in this position where I have a brand. I mean, it's obnoxious again to point out this nerd first world problem. But yeah, Mm -hmm. now I finally get a new episode of what if I've it's been a while since I've seen all of these ones for the first time. So I'm going in knowing nothing for this next episode, uh, just like all of you. And I, I cannot wait to get a brand new dose of uh, of What If on Disney Plus this week. Uh, but that is where we are going to wrap up our show. Don't forget, as I mentioned at the top, we have a, we have even more podcasts that you can get now via Apple Podcasts. So go to the MCU Fan Show channel on Apple Podcasts and check out Fan Show Plus. It is a separate show within our channel that has subscriber-only audio, although the first episode, our Spider-Man No Way Home trailer breakdown, is free. And then we have premium episodes that will follow one that's already on there with our breakdown of the Eternals trailer, as well as Anthony Mackie, Marvel cutting the check to Anthony Mackie for Captain America (laughs) 4, and Dominique Thorne making her MCU debut as Riri Williams in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And then follow us in all those places you can. We are at MCU Fan Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Tom, where can everybody find you? If you want you them to. You can find me at Tom DeMichael. It's spelled DeMichelle, like a real pain in the ass. D-E-M-I-C-H-E-L-E. On all platforms, Twitter, Instagram, uh, also on Twitch. I do have a, a series on there where I am drawing uh, mostly MCU characters. Uh, you can check out some of that artwork on my Instagram. Going to be starting up a new round of that soon, hopefully drawing some uh, interpretations of characters from What If. Um, so yeah, check me out there. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Sean Gerber. So for MCU Fan Show, he was Tom. I'm still Sean. He's still Tom too, by the way. Thanks for mm-hmm. listening. We'll see you next time.